going to bring you to tears. And I don't think that they will. Today we're going <laughs> to I'm bring you to tears. Today we're going to continue our message we started last week. We have a two-part message we started last week looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 17 through 25. We've returned to that same text today to have a part two and a follow-up talking about the power of the cross. You know, within the text we looked at last week, and you know, the featured text again being 1 Corinthians, obviously Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, or known as Corinthians. And he, he pleads with them, a couple of verses we looked at last week, he essentially pleads with them to let go of any notion that they may have had that baptism saves. You know, the saving agent is not the water. It is only in the acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord. And perhaps people were confused then and maybe even now about it. So Paul tries to clarify all that up by saying, hey, it's great to have baptism. We also have believers' baptism. You make a decision. But it's not that water that's the saving agent. It is only Jesus. So he began looking at the text last week. In that portion letter we look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, by making that known. And then he, he also stated, as we looked also at verse 18, in the latter part of verse 17, that he even further begged the Corinthians to turn away then from men's words of wisdom. And he, and he said, don't be deceived by those who have flattery speech and words of eloquence. Now, you don't have to worry about this with me because I don't ever have words of eloquence. I can barely say the word eloquence. So I don't have those flattering words perhaps that maybe people just try to use sometimes to impress because he was trying to give everybody a warning and say there's going to be teachers and preachers who are simply going about their business trying to impress and, and it will preach a prosperity gospel. Maybe even more so today than even in that time. Can we be impressed by those who use words of eloquence and flattery words and just try to give you a, a feel-good message? But he tells them then to just look out for them because essentially their words only nullify the cross and reduce the cross to nothing. So in the very early part of what we looked at last week in our text, primarily verses 17 and 18, he issues a couple warnings that he felt was important for the church at Corinth to know to about the baptism and about those who have this fancy speech about them. But there's more that we can deceive, or, I mean, receive from the text today, so we're going to return to it again once more. We're going to start, basically, where we picked up. We're going to also discuss the fact that in verse 18 last week, he talked again about those who are among the lost and the perishing and how they may view your beliefs and your faith and the power to cross is foolishness. He will use those words again today in the text that we'll read and expand upon that people today in our world look at your faith your beliefs, and certainly the cross, which we put value in, knowing the Lord sacrificed himself upon that cross, as simply foolishness. So, but people who think about those things that we value, like our faith and the cross that we know our Lord died upon, made the sacrifice for us, and look upon that all as foolishness, I mean, their life really is not as grand if you begin to really dissect their life, and they'll be honest with you, it's not as grand as they often make it out to be. I mean, they have problems just like anybody else does. But they seldom address their problems. In fact, many of them hide behind their misery and put on this facade of constant happiness. 
So they may think that they are successful, but in reality, their life is on a road to a disastrous end. I mean, Paul realizes this is the case for many of those he loved at the church at Corinth. And he realized even today that we do, that the same thing exists to people we know and love as well. So he urges everybody to let go of those foolish beliefs in the world today or, and, and just cling to the cross because there's power in the cross. We return to our theme we had for last week, which is really the same thing for today, that Paul points to the cross as the answer to the problems that plague men or mankind in the world. The cross is the answer. It's the answer for anything in our lives. We're blessed because of the cross. We receive happiness from the cross. We get peace from the cross. There is a lot of power in the cross. Paul is trying to make that fact be known and to try to correct the heresy that certainly existed at the church. Again, our text is first chapter, or first Corinthians chapter 1, we begin in verse 17. Let us read the same text as last week, but we'll pick up really in the first two verses, although we'll read it again. Then we'll pick up on verse 18 or 19 and expand from there. But stand with me this morning as we do the honor to reading of the word. We're going to again pick up the story in the middle portion of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church, and he says this in verse 17, and we'll read through verse 25. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of discerning I will throw. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly what he preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Oh, Father, we come again before you today, having read the text from last week once more. And we pray, Lord, as we go over this text throughout the next 30 minutes or so, that we begin to speak to us of truly about the power of the cross and how the world may look upon as being foolish, but for us, Lord, it is certainly something in which we cling to and let us receive then lord the message you want to have for us today let us listen with attentive ears and open our hearts to receive it and be thankful what we shall learn and can apply in jesus name we pray amen well just as we stated the last week i mean i think the passage is really a powerful reminder of the cross and the sacrifice that was made for each and every one of us Again, we discussed verses 17 through 18 and gave a little brief recap. So let's jump into verse 19 and continue to expand and explain, and, and explain the text. Because here we find in verse 19, if we return to the text, that Paul states, it has been written, I will destroy, it has been written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will throw. So notice how Paul says it has been written. So Paul is actually summarizing Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. 
I have it behind me for you to see that that's what he's referring to. But in the original text in Isaiah, the saying is a warning for Israel because of its indifference and arrogance to God. But here, I mean, Paul is really using it as an, to emphasize a point that Jesus often made, which is that God's way of thinking is not like the world's way. And we should be blessed that the world's way and God's way is different type of thinking. And it's sometimes opposite of normal human wisdom. So Paul is emphasizing that God's way of thinking is not like the world's way. And he's even further saying that God then offers eternal life, which the world can never give you. I mean, it's interesting as we begin to look further into what Paul is saying here and, and trying to put it into a way of understanding. It's interesting that people can spend a lifetime and maybe some of us have done this. We, we, we try to spend a lifetime, or we certainly know people who've done it. They spend a lifetime accumulating knowledge and wisdom and yet never learn how to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? They, they, they read, they study, they receive everything possibly to mankind, philosophy, everything. They, they accumulate what we view as wisdom and knowledge. But they never learn how to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now that's sad. That's what they seek and they maybe think they've obtained it, but they haven't. And maybe you know people that just have this in their life. I mean, maybe you firsthand know people like this that are exceptionally smart, well-educated, worldly-wise people that can help solve any problem. Any man-made problem they can solve, but they know nothing about having the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You may know people just like that. One of the observation I was reading this week from Nuffle Stanton, this commentary, and he provided an interesting question and observation when he said these words. He said, aren't you glad that God chose not to permit the world to know him through the world's intellectual system? Yeah, I think we're blessed because he chose not to do that. He said, for if that were the case, salvation would be available to only the privileged few who have high IQs and have the opportunity to study and learn under philosophers. I think we're immensely blessed that he chose to just give us his word and we can receive it and have it explained to us, but he chose not to just reveal that to intellectual people. I'm not saying any of us are dumb by any means, but He's kind of dumbed it down for us a little bit, if you will. That anybody can understand, that anybody can obtain. It don't have to be the intellectual elite, which is what the Pharisees had thought. So yeah, we should be thankful that the Lord had provided a way for us to understand and not to those who are exceedingly high in intelligence. But the truth is that those who are exceedingly high in intelligence and exceedingly smart and often are viewed as wise people are often those that look upon your faith as complete foolishness. Case in point, some of the best well-known atheists, some are still here, some have passed on, but some of those who, who are best known as atheists, who are often viewed as extremely intelligent and, and you know, obviously wise, would be people who look upon your faith as foolishness, would be people like Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking, Christopher Hitchens, a well-known author. These people are highly intelligent. 
probably lots of wisdom. But they look upon our faith as foolishness. They don't believe there is a God. You know, so Paul then exposed the fallacy of man's wisdom and obtaining man's wisdom in verse 19 and states that God will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent, which essentially means, if you use other translations, he will frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent, or he will the, the cleverness of the clever I will set aside, is written in the NASB. However you want to say it, it all boils down to the fact that God will make foolish the wisdom of the world. Now perhaps we need to kind of pause and explain and slow down a little bit to make sure we're talking about what is meaning by the wisdom of the world. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, understanding what I may be referring to, let's just kind of slow down a little bit and maybe explain for just a moment the wisdom of the world and how it may be easy to obtain. Because it seems that man's wisdom stems from life experiences as it relates to the five senses. That's what makes it real for them. Most people define what is real or what is not by the five senses. So if you can't smell it, touch it, hear it, taste it, or see it, according to man's wisdom, it can't be real. If you can't smell it, touch it, hear it, taste it, or seal it, it cannot be real. So basically, most of man's reasoning and wisdom comes from the five senses telling them what is real based upon what they've experienced. And then they employ stuff like science and technology to explain things that occur in the world. This is why so many people today, even their education system, refers to evolution or Darwinism rather than actually stating what is written in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation account. They refer not to biblical knowledge and understanding that we have, which explains a lot of things pertaining to how creation began and is really the source, but they'll refer to scientific technology, evolution, and Darwinism to explain how things began and to educate our young children. So man has been looking upon and attempting to explain things in the world according to life experiences and the five senses. But a problem develops with that. I mean, the problem occurs in man's logic and wisdom to explain things that pertain to things of the cross. Humanists, scientists, Archaeologists have repeatedly tried to explain the burial, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They try everything they possibly can imagine to explain the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they can't explain it. They come up empty each and every time, which maybe is the point of Paul's making in verse 20. Maybe it's what he's trying to say, that they can't explain the reality of what we put our faith in. He says, where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Absolutely he has. They cannot explain Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and resurrection. But we put our faith in that. It's how we establish our faith and how it gives us hope. So God truly has made foolish the wisdom of the world. I mean, but note how Paul then in verse 20, he's, he called upon three groups of persons. He says, where is the wise man? He said, where is the scribe or maybe the scholar? He said, where is the debater, the disputer, the philosopher of the age? 
He said, where are they? Because when it comes time to truly accept Jesus, they're nowhere to be around. They, they just simply cannot receive it because they put all their intellect in the way. So where are they? Marion Soares pondered the same question, and he states this. He said, perhaps Paul is summoning them to a challenge. But from the flow of his argument, it seems more likely that Paul is indicating that God's destruction and frustration of the wisdom of the world has dismissed their standards and made their logic irrelevant. And then Soares states a rhetorical question to make his point. Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? And indeed he has. Because men can learn many things through investigation, study, and reasoning, and requiring knowledge. You can, they, can, they can come to know many different things. But here it is. Men cannot come to know God through their intellect alone. Just what is it then that prevents men from knowing God? What's the blinders that mankind, I say man, but referring to men generically, is the blinders that they wear. And some of the blinders are, again, those intellectual blinders, like God's way does not fit the way we think in the world, or they think in the world. I mean, universities are filled with professors, hopefully not the Christian universities, but at times it still happens where they're filled with professors who try to make clear in their teaching that God does not exist. So those are the blinders they just put on and convey to others to try to have the same reasoning. Again, based upon the five senses, it tells them it can't be real. They can't explain it. And some of the binders then are moral blinders. Like, for example, God's demands his lifestyle does not fit the world's lifestyle and their lust. So because that happens to be the case, they put on these moral blinders and then begin to rationalize and accept things like homosexuality and abortion and all these other things that we cannot accept as Christians. But moral blinders they put on and think, okay, this is, this is society refused to see them as sin. We see that as sin. But society said, that's not sin. That's just a different way of thinking. We can accept abortion. But we can accept people preaching from the pulpit that's not of the same sex. I mean, they may practice same-sex marriage. We can accept that. They even rationalize a lot of times God's word to say how it's acceptable. I think one of our studies recently was talking about how, you know, David's best friend was Jonathan. And it says in Scripture how David loved Jonathan and Jonathan loved David. People who support that homosexual lifestyle would say, okay, there's the support we need right there. It says in Scripture that they loved each other. That supports the rationale. Isn't it interesting how they can twist it to the way they want to receive it? They put these blinders that the intellect, the moral standards, and just refuse to see that as sin. So what we can conclude from man's wisdom and for all the man's intelligence and all man's cleverness is that it fails as compared to the power of the cross. It always will ultimately be foolishness. They may view our faith as foolishness, but ultimately their view is complete foolishness. The words of the prudent, the words of the wise, who always try but cannot explain man's search for love, joy, and peace. Think about that. 
the words of the wise, the words of those who are knowledgeable, who seem to have this high intellect, this high IQ, they seem to always try but cannot explain man's search for love, joy, and peace. And so ask yourselves, why? Why cannot not explain man's search for love, joy, and peace? And the answer is because the ultimate love, joy, and peace can only be found in the true and devoted relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. You may think you have happiness. You may think you have peace. And all the world may think there's peace and happiness within the world when they try to obtain certain things to satisfy their, their, their thirst. But that is not true happiness. That is not true peace and love and joy. The only true peace, love, and joy is having a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. No man can reach God and find truth or solve the world's problems without love and total sacrifice. That is what the cross is all about. Science, technology, even good works do not bring the love, joy, and peace for which man desires and longs for. Nor do they give the perfect assurance of knowing God in eternal life. Which means then that we must come to the crucified Christ and the risen Christ to receive eternal life and the joy of personal relationship with our Savior. It all resides in Christ and the power from the cross. And so all Paul is doing within this section of the letter, writing to the church of Corinth and trying to make his friends of the Corinthians to know, he's striving to make a point in establishing the absolute mighty power of the cross and how it should not be viewed as foolishness, as it so often is with the way of the world. So he's trying to make this entire point, and perhaps at some point he's made, maybe he's made his point. But notice in verse 22, it just seems he's not quite finished making the point. I mean, while verse 20 referred to the wise, the scribes, and the disputer, notice in verse 22, he jumps into the face of some very specific groups of men. He calls them Jews and Greeks. He says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. I mean, Paul says that the Jews demand miraculous signs on the order of those done by Moses and the prophets. And the Greeks just simply look for wisdom, which was a common thread in that day of the Greek culture. But, but Paul's saying here with the demand for signs and wisdoms that it's been given. It has come with Jesus Christ. Of all those types of signs and miracles, is not that the greatest miracle of mankind? Jesus? The fact that he was born of a virgin, the fact that he risen from the dead, that's one of the greatest miracles of all time. And they don't see it. They look for other signs of miracles and wonders. In fact, this, this portion of Paul's emphasis on the fallacy of man's wisdom makes me actually think of the story written in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. I have a portion of it for you later, but let me kind of paraphrase what's happening first with the rich man and Lazarus. As you may know the text already, there was a rich man. He was clothed in purple, all these kind of things. It shows his richness. And he feasted sumptuously every day. He had everything he possibly wanted. He's a rich man. At his gate 
was a poor beggar named Lazarus, who was covered with sores and desired to be fed from the rich man's table. It says in Scripture that even the dogs would come and lick Lazarus' sores. But the poor man, Lazarus, died and was carried to heaven by the angels to Abraham's side. Then also says in Scripture that the rich man also died and was buried. And he was placed then in Hades, in torment. But he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and then Lazarus at his side. So having said this, he called out, verse 24, he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish. But in verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in his lifetime received bad things. So verse 27, we find it comes to this point. The rich man said, I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. For Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And they said, No, Father Abraham. If someone comes to them from the dead, they will repent. For he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be convinced by someone to be rising from the dead. The emphasis here is placed upon the fact that they do not hear Moses and the prophets. Neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. They're looking for some sort of miraculous sign when the signs have been given to us through Jesus Christ. I mean, he's simply saying that people do not understand the ultimate sign and miracle given to us through Jesus Christ. God gave us Jesus Christ. They're looking for some other miraculous sign. But Paul makes it simple. He said, all you got to do is look for Christ crucified in verse 23. All you have to do, the ultimate sign has been given. The ultimate miracle is Christ crucified. He makes it plain and simple of how they can receive Jesus. Just look at Christ crucified. But the Jews look at the stumbling block. The Greeks view it as foolishness. But you have to trust Jesus. You, you have, you and me and the rest of the people of the world, across the, all the people across the world who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. All of us who accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we know that there's power in that cross and the truth rests in it. The world may view it as foolishness, but for every one of us who accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we know about that power of the cross and the truth that rests in it. Because we know the cross is anything but foolishness. Which is what Paul sums up in verse 25. After all is said and done, verse 25, he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And the cross proves that God's way is wiser and stronger than man's way. Doesn't it? The cross proves that God's way is wiser and stronger than man's way. It is wiser and stronger because it has the power to save. In fact, it could save the entire world if all men, if all of mankind would just surrender themselves to the Christ, to the, to the Christ of the cross, it would save them. It would save the entire world. That's how we were saved. We recognize the power of the cross and accept Jesus Christ. So how can the cross save all men who surrender? By its power. The power 
of the cross is such that it radically transforms and changes mankind from the inside out. When a man truly bows before the cross and surrenders all he has and all he has to Christ, he becomes a new creature. We've all become new creatures. Anyone who has bowed to the cross except to Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, we've become new creatures. The person arises with a whole new look and attitude later in life. They've been given a blessing because they're going to inherit eternal life. All because of the cross and the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Here's a thought. Think for a moment what would happen if one million people within a nation, such as ours, bowed down before the cross, giving all they had to the cross. Think about what would really happen if you simply one million people within a particular nation bowed down before the cross, giving all they had to Christ. I mean, what would happen if they really sacrificed themselves to totally to Christ as Christ did to us? I mean, Jesus made the sacrifice for us. What if one million people just simply said, Christ, Jesus, I'm going to bow down to you. I'm going to surrender myself to you totally and completely. What would truly happen if just one million people, that's a lot of people, if just one million people did it truly, devotedly? What would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. This world, this country, would have less evil. We would have less selfishness. We would have less hatred. We would have less violence. If they truly sold themselves out to the cross and the power within and accepted Jesus Christ, we'd have all less of these things. We wouldn't have as much violence and hatred and evil. I mean, surrendering to the cross before a million people, that's a lot of people. Obviously, we'd have more humility. We'd have more love. We'd have more joy. We'd have more peace in the world. People always want to talk about world peace. How can we get world peace? There's only one answer to world peace. What is his name? It's Jesus. That's the only answer to ever having world peace. Next time you see one of those contestants, they're going to say they got it wrong when they talk about world peace because they always seem to talk about world peace. Just shout at the TV and you say, girl, you got it wrong. It's just Jesus. You want world peace? Get Jesus in your life. It would change everything about the world. We would have, yeah, we'd have more love, joy, and peace in our world. So how does the world, this country, this state, this city, your home, have more love, joy, and peace? It is done first and foremost with you. You recognizing the power of the cross and surrendering everything to Jesus. Jesus is love. And he loved you and me so much that he took the pain afflicted upon the cross for all of us. The cross that Jesus suffered upon has the power to radically transform lives. Last week, as an example, we used the story of Big Blue Lewis, which none of us ever really heard from, but he was a 16-year-old that violently murdered a man in a street fight and was sentenced to life in prison. If you were here, remember the story, you may remember that as he was sentenced to life in prison, this 28-year-old, five-foot widow woman came to the prison as part of a chaplain program and had the Easter story 
blue ultimately came, heard, and received, and his entire life was changed because he accepted Jesus Christ. He became a free man. That was the story used last week to show the power of the cross and how it radically transforms mankind from the inside out. He was a violent man from the inside, and it changed everything about him. This week, I want to share with you a different story to show how we have the power of the cross and how one man, how just one man can recognize the power of the cross and convey that to millions who also can receive the power of the cross, accept Jesus Christ and be saved. Because several months ago, a wonderfully, almost amazing and stunning story of a movie made into a movie came out in local theaters called The Blind. Maybe you've seen The Blind. Maybe you haven't. If you haven't seen The Blind, maybe you need to see it. Because the movie tells the story of Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty. Here's the synopsis of the movie. He says, long before Duck Dynasty's Phil Robertson became a reality TV star, he fell in love with Miss Kay and started a family. But his deans threatened to tear their lives apart. Set in the backwoods swamps of 1960s Louisiana, the blind shares never-before-revealed moments in Phil's life as he seeks to conquer the shame of his past, ultimately finding redemption in an unlikely place. This stunning cinematic journey chronicles the love story that launched a dynasty, the turmoil that nearly brought it crashing down, and the hope that rose from ashes to create a foundation for generations to come. That's the synopsis of the movie. It's a wonderful movie. I hope we get a chance to watch it sometime. But more specifically, the story is this. The story is the redemption of a man. Yeah, it's Phil Robertson. Many of you know Phil Robertson. The redemption of a man who is headed straight to hell. But he turned his life around. Again, his wife, Miss Kay, stood by his side through all the different horrible moments they had early part of their marriage. Even times when he didn't want her to. I mean, he forced her to leave and to get out with her children when he went his own wayward way. Now, you know Phil Robertson, if you really know him, you know his story, you know he played football, and actually he was a starting quarterback for his college team. The sub to Phil Robertson was Terry Bradshaw. Amazingly, Terry Bradshaw went on to have a great NFL career in Super Bowls. But Phil Robertson gave it all up because of his love of ducks. I mean, he wanted to be a hunter. He wanted to kind of concentrate on his own wayward path. So he gave it all up. And let Terry Bradshaw have all the fame and claim and recognition. He gave it all up because he wanted to pursue his own selfish interests. Had nothing to do with his wife, Miss Kay, and his children. When his own little camper in the swamps of Louisiana just hunted ducks and hunted continuously and drank like there was not going to be left for tomorrow. That was his life. But through the grace of God, through the loving Savior Jesus Christ, he turned his life around and created a dynasty was still holding true to his faith. His original introduction to Jesus was done actually in a bar by a preacher who was sent there by his sister. Amazingly, right? I mean, one particular point in their life, Phil Robertson and his wife Kay bought a bar. 
and they continued to serve people in the bar for years. And he continued to have his drunkenness and his, all of his different things he was doing. And, and that's kind of where he left Kay in the kids and pursued his own interests and just let the bar close. But the bar closed, but before the bar closed, his sister recognized the, the ditch he was in and sent his, her preacher to him to witness to him. The movie shows some of this and how Phil perceived that, which is not very positive. But that was his introduction to Jesus was in a bar by a preacher sent by his sister. But the sister told the preacher that if he should stay the course for Phil and eventually have him to convert to accept Jesus Christ, that he would bring thousands into the family of God. She basically prophesied the ministry he would begin when he came to know God and Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's exactly what happened. The preacher never gave up on Phil. Neither did Miss Kay, for that matter. He comes to a point where he crashed. He knew something had to change. He finally got to that part where he was in a pit and he could not pull himself out of it. Many people have been there. But Phil, when he crashed and got in that particular pit, he knew he needed something else. And he remembered the introduction of the story of Jesus in that bar by that particular preacher. And the preacher came back to the camper in the swamp and began to restore Phil to a new man. Phil accepted Jesus Christ and was baptized in the, in the river. Ultimately, the movie says this as an ending to how the movie is going about. It is a story to show how even the worst person, including people who have been sent to prison for unspeakable things, can be turned into a son of God. Phil Robertson is truly a godly man now who just wants to share Jesus with everyone he comes in contact with. That's what the blind is all about. It's called the blind because of a duck blind. And how he sits in the duck blind with one of his friends who has cancer. And how that person comes to accept Christ. So here you have a display, an illustration again, once again, of the power of the cross. How the cross that Jesus went and died upon for all of mankind. And how Jesus died for all of mankind and how we can receive that because he died for us personally. I mean, like when he was on the cross, he was thinking of you. Of all mankind. That's just the power in the cross to be able to to see what Jesus did for all of us. And the power there is so that when you receive Jesus Christ truly devoted to him, have a meaningful relationship, it radically transforms a man, a person, a woman, a child. It just transforms you from the inside out. You become a whole new creature, a whole new person. When a man truly bows before the cross and surrenders all he has to Christ and fully surrenders, not, not make-believe, partially trying to make an impression to others surrender. I mean, truly, devotedly surrender your life to Christ and recognize the cross he died upon. You become a whole new person, a whole new creature. So if it's never happened to you, become a cre- new creation today. Just let go of the wisdom of the world because it is foolishness 
all the wisdom in the world. I mean, you have to go to school to be educated. You have to do all these different things. But it is the foolishness of the world. If you never received Jesus Christ, you're receiving the foolishness of the world. So today, just fully surrender to the cross. And they said, Jesus Christ. Just surrender to the cross. Receive Jesus. Let go of the foolishness of the world. Now here's the thing. I can't think of a better way to let go of the foolishness of the world and to make sure we completely accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to commune with him. So Chris and Josh and the others will come back in here in just a moment so we can have even our children with us to observe the Lord's Supper and to commune with our Lord. Now, to prepare to do this, we truly need to let go of the foolishness. If anything, actually, that we have